0: We'll return this evening to First Peter chapter five, and we'll continue right where we left off this morning in First Peter chapter five, verse eight. As we prepare for the reading of God's word, let me ask you a question. Why did God become man? If you had one answer to give, what would it be? Think about that for a moment. Why did Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, take on flesh and dwell among us? I think there's several right answers you could give. One of the right answers to this question is that Jesus came to expose and to destroy the works of the devil. And this answer comes right out of 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, which says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he's here. That's why he's come. Jesus exposes sin. He exposes falsehood and half-truths, and through his life, death, and resurrection, he destroys these works of the devil. It's been said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or the demons. Uh, One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils or demons themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And so remembering that, we must strike a balance. We We want to have a biblical understanding of spiritual warfare. We don't want to underestimate the power and influence of Satan and the demons, nor should we overestimate Their power and influence. As the Apostle Peter uh, seeks to encourage the flock of God to stand firm in their faith, he gives us both warning and encouragement regarding the spiritual warfare. His warning should keep us from underestimating the devil, and then his encouragement should keep us from overestimating. So let's listen carefully to Peter's warning and exhortation, beginning in verse 8. This is God's word. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith Many Scottish uh, preachers by the name of John Brown, but uh, the one I'm thinking of now is the 19th century Scottish preacher of that name. He wrote a wonderful little book on this passage of scripture entitled The Christian's Great Enemy. And I'll be uh, referring to it several times this evening and would encourage you to get a copy and read it. It's really a wonderful book, The Christian's Great Enemy by John Brown. If you're looking for a primer on spiritual warfare, that's a good place to start. And in that book, he summarizes what the Bible teaches us about demons or evil spirits. He says, there exists a numerous race of unembodied, intelligent beings occupying a higher place than man in the the general scale of existence who have lost the moral integrity in which they were created and who, though under the control of the supreme providence, God, are constantly engaged in an attempt by a variety of methods, and particularly by influencing in a malignant manner the minds of man to uphold and extend the empire of evil in the universe of God. Demons, or evil spirits, are fallen apostate angels, they're creatures created by God, originally created very good as all things were. And among these fallen angels, we know there's the prince of demons, the great serpent himself, Satan. We learn of him early in the scriptures. He's the one who slithers into the garden and tempts our first parents to sin. And he's successful. He's the one who attempts to get Job to curse God and die. Thankfully, there he's unsuccessful. And again, an unsuccessful attempt, he, he tempts our Lord Jesus in the wilderness. And he's the one of whom Peter writes here. He's our adversary, the devil. And if we're going to stand firm in our faith, we must know our great enemy. Right? This is basic warfare. Know your enemy. You must know uh, your enemy. You must know our, your duty and reference to this enemy. And you must know where to find encouragement as you seek to do your duty in reference to this enemy. And so we have those three points this evening. Our enemy, our duty, and our encouragement. Our enemy, our duty, and our encouragement. What I hope we come to believe and experience today is that the eternal dominion of Christ Jesus empowers Christians to resist their enemy, the devil. I'll say that again, that the eternal dominion of Christ Jesus empowers us as Christians to resist our enemy, the devil. So first, who is our enemy? Well, we've already said it. He's the devil. He's the prince of the fallen angels. He's the great serpent. He's the tempter. He's the accuser. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He has many names. John Brown says, error, sin, and misery in all their forms are ultimately his work. His animating principle is hatred of God, and a leading object is the maintenance and extension of the power of evil. Let's look more closely at what Peter writes about our enemy here. He writes, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Great graphic language here. Seeking someone to devour. First notice he's our adversary. The devil's no friend of any man because he desires everyone's delusion and everyone's destruction. But he's especially no friend of the Christian. If you're a Christian here today, he hates you. This is because God has established enmity, hatred, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. All the way back in Genesis 3, we are at war. Formerly, the Christian was uh, not a Christian. They were under the power of Satan. But now in Christ, they've escaped from him. And so Satan pursues them just as Pharaoh pursued Israel, his former slaves. Brown says he, de- he endeavors to make as miserable as he can in this world those whom he knows he will have no opportunity of tormenting in the next. He's our adversary, an opponent, an enemy. A second, he's compared to a lion, the most fearful of beasts. He prowls and he roars as a bloodthirsty animal, seeking someone to devour. He's a hunter. A man-eater. And as our adversary, he has certain lion-like attributes. At first, he's subtle. A lion's going to lie in secret waiting for his prey. He'll crouch, he'll pounce upon his unsuspecting victim. In Genesis 3, we we know the devil takes the form of a serpent, and we're told that the serpent was was more subtle or crafty than all the other beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. We see his subtlety, his his craftiness, as he tempts Eve with the forbidden fruit. Again, Brown writes, with that what consummate address does he whet her curiosity, quiet her fears, and flatter her vanity till he has accomplished his great purpose? And what was his great purpose? The ruin of our race. Satan didn't run in the garden, fangs bared, claws showing, he, he began with that subtle question, didn't he? Did, did God really say? He drew our first mother into his net before he closed on her like a Venus flytrap. And he has, many, he, has, he has had many millennia to uh, refine and to perfect this subtle craft of tempting men, women, and children to sin. And so Paul can write in Ephesians chapter 6 of the schemes of the devil, plural, not just one, many. He doesn't have one play in the playbook. He personalizes his craft according to the weaknesses and the the characteristics of his victims. Brown says he takes advantage of everything in our temper, age, and condition to give effect to his suggestions. He can present himself as an angel of light can look so good, so right, so true. He uses all his craft, all his subtlety to disturb our peace, to slow our progress, to prevent repentance, and to secure the destruction of the sinner. Our adversary folks is subtle. A second he's active. He's active. He prowls around. In the book of Job, God asked Satan, From where have you come? And do you remember Satan's reply? From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. Now Satan is not omnipresent like God, but he has a spirit, and he's actively moving from place to place, and he actively deploys his evil legions over the face of the globe. He's active day and night. He knows the best time to tempt or to accuse. And because he knows that his time is limited, he's even more active. He's making the most use of his time, redeeming the time. Even when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and and he successfully resisted the devil, we're told that Satan departed only for a season. He would tempt the Son of God again at the cross Do you remember what was said at the cross? If you're the son of God, come down from there. He can save others, but he can't save himself. Those are the words of men, but they're ultimately from the tempter. If if temptation leaves us, it's only for a season. He will return to try us again. Our, Our adversary is active, and therefore we must be always prepared. A third, he's cruel. He's cruel. He shows no pity. He loves to inflict pain. Um, C.S. Lewis, you might have mixed feelings about him as I do, but in the second book of his Ransom trilogy uh, entitled Paralandra, he gives this terrifying picture of the cruelty of the Satan figure, uh, Weston. Weston's possessed and finds himself in this perfect Edenic world, um, It's floating on water. It's a world without sin, without death. And Weston spends his time, The satanic figure, spends his time wrecking havoc in this world, senselessly ripping apart little animals. He's wasteful. He's terrible. He hates life in all its forms. Brown says that Satan has a savage satisfaction in producing misery. Day and night, he restlessly seeks for opportunities of making the good bad and the bad worse. The happy miserable and the miserable more miserable. And so the devil's cruel. Fourth, he's powerful. The lion, it's a strong animal. Jesus describes Satan as the strong man. He is an angel after all, one who excels in strength. Just because he's morally depraved, this does not mean he's deprived of his strength. We see his strength at work in the devastation that he caused to Job. He moved the hearts of raiders. He inflicts physical disease and pain. He causes a mighty wind to blow and over a house and crush Job's children. All of this he did with the permission of God. But nevertheless, he had the power to carry it out. Our adversary is... Powerful. Now before we come to consider our duty in reference to our adversary, it would be helpful to say that not all people have the same relationship to Satan. For some, he is their father, the devil, as Jesus says. But for the children of God, he is a conquered enemy. Is he your father or has, have you been personally delivered from his dominion? Consider that. Again, John Brown says, how disgraceful and miserable must be the condition of those who are the slaves of this subtle, active, cruel, powerful, depraved intelligence, in turn the instrument of his detestable designs and the victims of his insatiable cruelty. And this is the situation of all unconverted men and women, whether they are aware of it or not. On the other hand, how grateful should we be to him who came to destroy the works of the devil, to deliver men from his usurped dominion and baleful power. The house of the strong man has indeed been entered by one stronger than he. The lion of hell is a chained lion, a, a muzzled lion for Christians. He may alarm us, but he can never devour us. His chain is in the hand of his conqueror and our Lord. Praise God. Therefore, knowing our enemy, let's move forward and and consider our duty in reference to him. What marching orders do you see here? What orders does Peter give us? Look again at verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Now for the rest of the orders, we'll jump to verse 9. Look there. He writes, resist him firm in your faith. So in these words, we find our duty in reference to our great enemy. Our duty is that we must resist the devil, and we will resist him as we are sober-minded, watchful, and firm in the faith. A godly resistance of satanic attack is the duty of the Christian. When you're tempted to sin, tempted to bow down to idols, tempted to to indulge the lust of the flesh, you must resist. Brown says, all temptation to sin, like all sin itself, may be considered as directly or indirectly the work of the devil. And so to resist the work of the devil, we must carefully keep out of the way of temptation. Don't we pray that? Lead me not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Don't put yourself into compromising situations. Keep off all debatable land. Don't give the devil a clear shot at your heart or at your mind. But when he does get a shot at you, when you are attacked, don't give in. But resist. Pray, deliver me from evil or from the evil one. Remember who your master is. Remember who is your king. Learn to say with Joseph, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? Learn to repel these fiery darts just as our Savior and Lord did by saying, It is written. It is written. Get behind me, Satan. If you would have the devil flee from you, you must resist him. And if you resist him, you will find that such resistance leads not to sin but to holiness. Again, Brown says, Let temptation to carelessness produce increased vigilance, and to indolence increased diligence. Let attempts to make us neglect the assembling of ourselves together lead to more conscientious attendance on public religious services and more undivided attention in them. In one word, let all his endeavors lead us in the way of, to lead us in the way of sin end in our farther advancement in the opposite way of holiness. This is the way to turn the artillery of the wicked one against himself. Nothing so well fitted to mortify that old adversary as to find that the very means he employs to produce our apostasy and to produce our ruin are converted or changed into the very occasion of our becoming more established in the faith and advanced in holiness and more fit for heaven. In other words, if Satan tempts you to break God's law, keep God's law. If he tempts you to neglect a duty, do that duty. And by doing so, your resistance turns into an attack against the evil one. Now Satan loves to attack the individual Christian. He loves it when he gets us all alone. Uh, But we know he also loves to attack the church as a whole. And to hinder our mission and our work. He sows weeds among the wheat... He whispers lies and heresies to corrupt the truth. He introduces false religions and false gods and false forms of worship. Our resistance, therefore, happens not only in our hearts and in our homes, not only in our workplaces and schools, but also in the church. In all these realms, we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, as our spiritual weapon and resist... The devil, and it's with the word in our hands and in our hearts that we perform this duty of resistance as we're sober-minded, watchful, and firm in the faith. So let's let's take those three uh, parts of Christian resistance one at a time. At first, we're commanded to be sober-minded. The opposite of being sober is being intoxicated. An intoxicated person stumbles about and they make poor decisions. We know this. Peter probably is using this in a figurative sense, but it it equally applies literally. When we drink too much, we lose the power of conscience and and of reason, and we increase the power of our lust and of sinful desires. It's that simple. Brown says of alcohol, it increases the strength of what needs to be restrained and weakens the strength... Of what is fitted and intended to restrain. It delivers the man, in one point of view, bound hand and foot, so far as resistance is concerned, into the devil's hands. So, on the one hand, this is a warning against drunkenness. But to be sober minded should also be understood figuratively here it's a state of mind. He's warning us against mental intoxication. There's more dangerous things than alcohol out there. The sober mind is set on the things above, but the intoxicated mind is set on earthly things. It's not drunk with the vain the, – the sober mind is not drunk with the vain philosophies and pursuits of this world. A sober mind knows that the time is shorter that, – that time is shorter than eternity. It doesn't allow a moment of earthly pleasure to forfeit an eternity of heavenly paradise. A sober mind judges things according to God's word, not according to man's opinion. So if we're to resist satanic attack, we must be sober-minded. Set our minds on the things above and not on things on the earth. We've got to watch out what we put into our minds. And second, we must be watchful. And this looks back to the, the metaphor Peter uses about the sheep and the shepherd. Uh, a lion loves to find both the shepherds and the sheep sleeping. makes for an easy meal. Brown defines watchfulness here as a, a state of consciousness of existing hazards, attention to them, an active employment of the means to escape them. In other words, do you know your escape route? The believer must know where danger comes from. They must actively watch for these dangers to lift their ugly heads. And like a school that has a fire plan, the Christian must have a game plan for resistance. When the alarm goes off, do you know what to do? Do you know where to go? Or are you going to be like that deer in the headlights, helpless, unable to move? Will you grab the right weapon? Will you ponder the path of your feet and keep your heart with all diligence? Folks, if we're to resist satanic attack, we must be watchful. And third, we must be firm in the faith. There needs to be a steadiness about the believer. When the winds of temptation blow, we must be rooted in our faith so we don't topple over. To be firm in the faith means that we... Know and we believe the doctrines of Scripture. It's helpful here to know your catechism, to be able to articulate clearly the truths of God's Word, to know about creation and about sin and about redemption, to know who God is and be able to uh, define what is God, to understand what man is and to understand uh, God's law and, and, and how to pray to God, all these things are important to know. It is the belief of these things that has sobered our minds and has aroused us to spiritual vigilance. It's woke us up. It's this thing only that can keep us awake, knowing the truth, knowing the doctrines which the Scriptures teach. It's not enough that we have believed, we must continue believing them, It is faith that makes a Christian strong for combat. If we lose sight of the truth and of its evidence, we'll be like Samson. We'll be shorn of our locks. We'll be weak just as any other man. To illustrate this, if we look at that first temptation of our first parents in the garden, we're going to see that Satan attacks the mind. He encouraged man to question... To doubt the word of God. Did God really say? Are the things that God says in his word really true? Does God really love me? Does God really care for me? Is the gospel really true? Is the blood of Jesus sufficient to cleanse me of all my sin? Or just some of my sin? These questions, these doubts are the whispers of Satan. Satan. He's seeking to uproot you, to undo you. And if you would resist his attack, you must be firm in the faith, firm in the doctrines of Scripture. So we must know our enemy. He's the devil. We must know our duty. We must resist him. And now third, let's find our encouragement so that we might be enabled to accomplish our duty and to be victorious over our adversary through Christ Jesus our Lord. So look again at verse 9. Peter writes, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's our encouragement. Here's our encouragement to resist our great enemy, the devil. Here's the fact and the promise that we need, which will lead us to a triumphant doxology. So look first at the fact, then we'll look at the promise, and then the doxology. The fact... That Peter states here is that we're not alone. You're not alone in your struggle with Satan. When we struggle and suffer under his temptations, we sometimes like to imagine that we're a special case. That this has never happened to anyone else ever before. And that's a lie. Paul says no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Satan has been working his craft since the beginning. All believers, including our Lord Jesus Christ, have experienced the temptations of the devil and the persecutions of wicked men. This is part of that holy war that was established after the fall. We must not be surprised by it or discouraged by it. Instead, when we experience these struggles, we ought to rejoice because they're signs that we belong to the people of God. We're part of this brotherhood throughout the world, the flock of God. That's an encouraging fact. Second, look at the promise. This promise has three parts, like a good sermon. First, it's the promise that these temptations and struggles are only for a little while. Satan's hard at work because his time's short. Brown says, The old serpent may shall never find his way into the restored paradise, and thither all the brotherhood are tending. The duration of such satanic temptations is limited. He's not always going to be there. These are s- those slight and momentary afflictions that are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. So that's the first promise. It's limited duration. Second, it's a promise that God is preparing us for glory. He has called us to glory, and He's leading us unto glory, and He will bring us to glory. Uh, Paul writes of that golden chain in Romans chapter 8. Do you know that golden chain? so encouraging. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The promise is that the believer has been set on track for glory. God will complete the work which he began. So the time of temptation is limited. Glory is a sure thing. And the third part of this promise is it's a promise that God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us in glory. These trials and temptations that God allows Satan to afflict upon us are able to make us fully ready and complete for glory. These are part of that purifying a fire which Peter writes of in chapter 1. We're being purified like gold in a furnace. And Jesus Himself became a fit Savior by being tempted by Satan. And we too are being made fit recipients of glory by undergoing these same attacks. God has a purpose in them that completely overrides the purpose of, of the devil. Again, Brown says, the idea is the design of these attacks of Satan is to drive you from the foundation, Jesus, and the truth as it is in Jesus. But God will render all these attempts ineffectual by His preparing you for them, establishing you in them, and strengthening strengthening you under them, and by enabling you to stand and withstand He will make them the means of fixing you firmer on that foundation than ever. Satan desires to have Christians that he might sift them and and scatter them to the winds of heaven. But through the grace of the Father and the prayers of the Son, our faith fails not. And to our own increased comfort and confirmed hope, by our our sifting, were proved to be not chaff, but the Lord's wheat, which we're told is to be gathered into His barn while the chaff is burned with that unquenchable fire. And so we have this promise, this beautiful promise that the great object of God in these satanic attacks is to settle His people on the foundation of to settle us on the rock who is Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, Satan may be our cruel adversary, a roaring lion, but he's a chained lion. And although he intends evil against us, God intends it for our good to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us upon the rock of Christ. How do you respond to that? But to praise God for His power and wisdom. And so third, let's look at that doxology of praise. This is not the praise of a defeated people. This is the praise of a victorious people. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To whom? To Satan? No. No. To Christ Jesus, our King. This is the praise of a victorious people. We are encouraged. We are enabled to fulfill our Christian duty with reference to the devil because we are victorious, not in ourselves, but in Christ. Through His atoning death, And through His life-giving resurrection, He defeated the devil. He set us free from Satan's dominion. He purchased us with His blood so that now we owe all obedience, all honor, all praise to Christ, our eternal and universal King. The ancient prophecy was fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The serpent bruised our Savior's heel in the crucifixion, But our Savior, the seed of the woman, crushed the head of the serpent. He plundered the strong man's house. He emptied the tomb. He put Satan under his feet. This dominion of Christ empowers Christians to resist their enemy, the devil. We know our enemy. We recognize his tricks and his snares. We know our duty. We must resist Him with sober minds, watchful eyes, being firm in our faith. And now we know our our encouragement. Satan's time is short. (coughs) Christ already has dominion. An everlasting dominion. And God is using even these satanic attacks to establish us, his people, in the faith, so that we might be encouraged to stand firm in the grace of God and to say of Christ, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.